of the new year. Uh, we stand there looking into the future with a sense of hope and expectation. It's an opportunity for a new beginning. It's viewed as a chance to entertain uh, fresh aspirations and to put last year's difficulties uh, behind us, so to say, so to speak, um, to deal with what we might say the less than successful efforts of uh, the year past by putting them away and beginning new to bring out additional resolve to make new commitments and perhaps to do so with even a clearer understanding of what might be desired or required. But this year feels a little different, doesn't it? I've heard uh, countless people say how glad they will be when 2020 is over. I've heard a lot of people say that. But I've not heard too many of them speaking with glowing optimism about 2021. I'm glad 2020 is over, but not so much with the hope of the future. We recognize that the turning of the calendar offers a clean slate. But what is to be written on that slate is really known only to God. What it might mean for the world at large, or for the Church of Christ around the world, or for our nation in particular, or for our region, or for our churches, or our congregation, or our families, or for us as individuals, that's all unknown, at least in part. And it's this unknown part that can be unsettling and even a little frightening, which leads me to ask the question that is sort of the title for this morning's message, what do you fear in the new year? What do you fear in the new year? And every one of us has his or her own answers uh, to that question. As we rest in Christ and God's good providence, our general response is a thankful and faith-filled nothing. Uh, what do we fear in the new year? We fear nothing because we're God's people and we have God's promises and we know God's love is upon us, so we have no fears. But we want to be sure, so as to be prepared for anything, that that confidence is anchored in faith and truth and not just sentiment and wishful thinking. I still remember as a little boy, my dad taking me out into the ocean and to the waves of the ocean. Those waves as a little kid looked 10 feet over my head. And dad kept saying, there's nothing to be afraid of. It's just water. You don't have to be scared. I'm right here, and I won't let anything happen to you. And we'd go out a little deeper and a little deeper and a little deeper, holding his hand. And I held on tightly, and I looked up at him, and I said, Okay, Dad, I'm not afraid. But as we marched out to what seemed to me to be an angry sea of life-threatening tidal waves, my mouth was saying that I wasn't afraid but I was absolutely petrified. 
Um, I was holding on tightly to that hand. I'm sure my dad could feel how hard I was squeezing that hand because I was scared to death as he was marching me out there. And if you ask, well, why didn't you just wrench your hand free and run for the shore if you were that frightened? And a lot of children today might try to do that. My answer would be twofold. First of all, you didn't wrench your hand out of my father's hold. Uh, the work he did gave him an iron grip, and there was no getting your hand free, even if you wanted to. And secondly, the truth be told, I was more afraid of him than I was of the waves. I was afraid of disappointing him. I was afraid of appearing not to trust or believe him when he said he would take care of me. I was even afraid of disobeying him, even under those circumstances. And with every step, we were getting in deeper and the waves were getting higher. And it was clear that my only safe course was to hold on and trust him. And we got beyond the point where there was any hope of letting go and getting away because I had to just hold on and trust him. And it's like that with this new year, isn't it? Your father in heaven says in Isaiah 41, verse 10, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And we in our finiteness and our frailty don't want to disappoint. We don't want to appear as anything but trusting because we love our Savior. And we certainly don't want to be found disobeying. And in the end, we really don't have a choice. We're going into this new year, prepared or unprepared. The calendar is going to change and the year begin by the end of this week. And very soon we'll be too deeply into it to do anything else but hold on and trust. But isn't that the wonderful part of it all? You know, when that first big wave rose directly over my head and it threatened to bury me in its frothing anger. Those strong arms of my dad, whose grip I couldn't get free of, they suddenly lifted me up high over that wave that crashed below me and ran harmlessly onto the beach, hissing into the sand until it was exhausted. And I wasn't looking at it from the bottom, crushed by the water and driven into the floor of the sea, I was looking at it from up where he lifted me. And I watched it go and crash and then run to the beach. I began thinking about fear and the new year a while back. But it really began to work on my mind and heart as I was working on the messages for the Advent season. As I did so, I was really struck by how often the term fear is mentioned in the brief accounts that we have of this event. Think about how much fear played a part in these events. It begins with Zacharias and it ends with Joseph. 
It begins with Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist. We read in Luke chapter 1 and verse 11, he's in the temple serving the Lord, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right hand or on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, we're told, and fear fell upon him. Shaking, trembling fear fell on Zacharias as he looked and saw that angel. Later, when Zacharias, whose speech was taken from him by the Lord, was again allowed to speak when he, he, was, he, he couldn't speak for the whole time that Elizabeth was expecting John the Baptist, but after John the Baptist was born and then there was a discussion among the family what he should be named and the family said he should be named Zacharias and they gave a, a, a writing implement to, to uh, Zacharias and he wrote, no, his name is John, according to the command of the Lord. When, that, when John did that, we read in Luke chapter 1 verse 64 that immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed and he spoke praising God. Then, we're told, fear came on all who dwell around them. And all these sayings were discussed throughout all the hill country of Judea. So all who dwelt around, all who, who had access to this story, knew that, that, that Zacharias had been rendered mute. And now, suddenly, because he said this child's name was going to be John, his mouth was opened and he could praise God. It caused fear among the people. That was the reaction that they had all around the area. So the angel told him, the angel, that is Zacharias, the angel told Joseph, the angel told Mary, and the angel told the shepherds, told all of them to stop being afraid because they were all afraid. They were all filled with fear. And it may seem that it was just because angels were appearing to them. But if you look carefully at the narratives, you'll see that it also had to do with their circumstances as well. That is, things that were happening to them. For Joseph, he said, the angel says to him, do not be afraid to take Mary to be your wife. Which indicates that Joseph was afraid. And the angel tells him, stop being afraid to take Mary to be your wife. And the last time that this sense of fear is mentioned in regard to all these affairs is when we're told that Joseph, returning from Egypt with Mary and the baby Jesus, heard that Archelaus was uh, reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, and he was afraid, therefore, to go back to Bethlehem. And so he was warned by God in a dream, and he turned aside into the region of Galilee and went back to Nazareth. Why did he go to Nazareth? Because he was afraid. And the Lord sent him out of that fear to Nazareth. So it's right there at the beginning when Zacharias is confronted with this angel. It's all the way there to the end, this, this fear, this sense of fear, in one way or another throughout the story. In this whole account, we find fear being brought on by angels, fear being brought on by the shining glory of the Lord. We find fear being brought on by uncertain and unexpected circumstances. Mary, don't be afraid, because this thing that's happening to you is of the Holy Ghost. 
all those circumstances. And fear is also being brought on by kings as well as political upheavals. All of these things are bringing fear into the world, into men's, men's hearts. And these things all conspire in one way or another to produce one kind of fear or another. Now, in addition, we're told by Scripture that part of the reason Jesus came into the world was to relieve the fears of men and women and children. That was part of the whole purpose in this. We go to Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 14. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall see disaster no more. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion. Let not your hands be weak. The Lord your God in your midst, the Mighty One, will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with His love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Do not fear, Zion. Let not your hearts be weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, the Mighty One, and He will save. And that was setting the stage for the coming of the Messiah, for the coming of Christ, and for the deliverance of God's people. It was Zacharias who was used by God to to draw our attention to the fact that it was the coming of the Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us, that would bring an end to these fears. In Luke chapter 1, after Zacharias' mouth is loosened and he's allowed to speak, we read in verse 67, Now his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear." in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. So fear is everywhere, and it appears in one form or another in practically every scene regarding the incarnation of Jesus Christ. At one point, we're told the whole city of Jerusalem is agitated and in turmoil, because of the fear they have of Herod when the wise men come there. Now, generally, there are two sorts of fear, though they all have what we might call their, or they both have what we might call their subcategories. There's just two, and for our purposes today, we'll call the two types of fear reverence and dread. Reverence and dread. Reverence of God, though it is a type of fear, is emboldening. And it can lead to encouragement, and it can lead to peace, and and to great contentment. It's still a type of fear, reverence. 
but it emboldens, strengthens. Proverbs 14, 26, in the fear of the Lord, there's strong confidence. And his children will have a place of refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to turn one away from the snares of death. So it's fear, it's reverence of the Lord, but it gives strong confidence and it gives life. Dread of the world and its circumstances, however, is debilitating and discouraging. It can break you down. It can make you weary. It can make you paranoid and leave you uncertain and worried and trembling and hiding. We read about Peter falling prey to that sort of prayer, or that sort of fear, excuse me, in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 11. Paul says, Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face, because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. Peter, in effect, is neutralized in his testimony for the gospel because of his fear, the fear of men. Reverence is a gift of God the Holy Spirit through the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's fueled by faith in God and his word. Dread is a tool of Satan. It's fueled by unbelief and distrust of God and an inordinate reverence for the world, its threats and the things that are in the world. Reverence leads to obedience and praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That fear of God, that reverence for God, gives, desire, gives us a desire to perfect holiness. Dread, on the other hand, produces rebellion against God. And rebellion against his word, it produces complaining and a spirit of ingratitude. And nowhere is that more graphically illustrated than with Israel when they are confronted with the threat of Pharaoh. We read in Numbers 13, but when the men who had gone up, not the threat of Pharaoh, but with the threat of the of the um, Canaanites in the promised land, excuse me. Numbers 13, 31 but the men who had gone up with him, that is, um, with Caleb, said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. And they gave the children of Israel bad report of the land which they spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak, came from the giants. And we were like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. So all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, 
Or if only we had died in this wilderness. Why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and our children should become a victim? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? They were made afraid by the report of the strength and the terror of their enemies, and that fear led them to a spirit of rebellion and complaining and and disobedience to God. That's what dread produces. Reverence doesn't put wishful hopes in the flip of a calendar, a shift in political power, the fickle agenda of human policies or projects. It places confidence in the word and the promise of the eternal God of the heavens, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In Psalm 19, verse 9, David writes, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Dread, on the other hand, lives in fear of what a day may bring, what might happen, what could happen. It lives in fear of what human powers might attempt, what new policies might portend. There's a continual dread of what might be, as if the world and the lives in it are spinning out of control into unavoidable disaster at the hands of men. That's what dread produces, that kind of fear, that kind of anxiety. Those who reverence God hold tightly to his hand, and they wait on him as the waves bear down. In Proverbs 19.23, we read, The fear of the Lord leads to life, and he who has it will abide in satisfaction. He will not be visited with evil. Those who live in fear, they hold the Lord's hand weakly. If they hold it at all. And they're always ready to let go and grab on to any drifting piece of wreckage already beaten and broken down only to be dragged down by it and pummeled and choked by the waves. There's a great difference between reverence and dread. And the one thing to be sure to be afraid of for a safe and happy 2021, beloved, is your God. Is your God. In Isaiah 8.13, the Lord himself says, The Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. Now those words of Isaiah are the backbone behind what Peter says later in 1 Peter chapter 3 beginning in verse 13. Where he says, and who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. Hallow him. And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. So what is it that's required of us here? First, it is to honor as holy. 
or that is to sanctify or hallow the Lord of hosts in our own minds and hearts. You're living in a time like so many others in the history of mankind where each man or woman does what is right in his or her own eyes. It's not merely the practice of our day, however. It's the religion of our day. Everyone with his or her own spirituality. I hear people say that frequently in our day. Well, I'm not a Bible person. I'm not a churchgoer. I'm not a Christian, but I am spiritual. And it's their own concept of spirituality that they're talking about. They have their own narrative. They have their own moral code. And that narrative and that spirituality and that moral code is the only acceptable civilized view of the world. That everybody should have their own individual one of those. God, on the other hand, calls for an acknowledgement among men and women that he alone is pure. That he alone is true. That his ways are the right ways. That it's not up to every individual to come up with his or her own moral code. It is his moral code that is to be acknowledged by men and women and children. (coughs) Going back to Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Go to one of those who has his or her own moral code or own spirituality and ask them if it fits that description. In other words, is your law perfect, converting the soul? The law that you've come up with, the law that you've invented for yourself, is that a perfect law that will convert your soul and convert mine too if I, if I adopt it? Will that be the result? Is your testimony sure? I mean certain, solid. We can put our confidence in it and it will make the simple wise if they just take, if they just adopt your view of life, your narrative, your, your moral code. Will we all be wise? Will that be the end result? Are all of your statutes right? And do they rejoice the heart of everyone who adopts them? Is that the end result? Is it pure? Does it enlighten the eyes? Everyone who hears your testimony, hears your, what your spirituality is, that just enlighten the eyes of everybody who, 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 who looks at what you have to say. The Lord makes that claim for his word, for his testimony, for his statutes. He does it because his way is pure. And what we're being asked here is not just to recognize these words in Psalm 19 as, as mere poetry 
or a pithy quote to to put out on social media. It's a confession of faith. And it's direction for all of our lives in the coming year. How do we know the right path to take? Well, the statutes of the Lord are sure. That's how you can know. But its effectiveness rests in your believing that it's true because God alone is true and right and pure as the living God. And notice the way the Lord puts it through Isaiah. Who is it that you're supposed to hallow, to recognize having this purity, this rightness about him? Notice the interesting description. It is the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts. It happens to all of us at times. We look out over the world and we see how seemingly universally our beliefs and convictions are doubted and mocked, ignored, and even condemned. And we wonder if we're alone. You know, we look out and we hear how people respond to the, to the word of God, how they respond to the message of the gospel and is presented to us again and again as a fringe minority position of, of radicals who are a little bit dangerous. Is it just a few men and women scattered about the world who hold to those truths? And it is in the temptation raised by our fears and Satan that we even entertain the idea that our faith is universally despised. Because I have news for you, beloved. It's not. It's not. It is rebellion and unbelief that is universally despised. Why do I say that? Because we are to hallow the Lord of hosts. Your God has legion upon legion of heavenly hosts who acknowledge about him all the same things that you do this morning. Legion upon legion of heavenly hosts who believe of him and know of him what you believe of him today and what you know of him. You are hardly in a minority. You remember that great scene in 2 Kings chapter 6 where Elisha is being surrounded by an army and uh, his his uh, servant looks out from the top of this hill and says, they're all around us. And Elijah prays and he says, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Elisha wasn't in a minority. Elisha's position wasn't universally despised. Yes, there was a great army there around him, but there was also a great army above him. This legion upon legion, who are the servants of the God you love and serve. 
In Psalm 68, verse 17, it says, The chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of thousands. The Lord is among them, as in Sinai, in the holy place. And this way of expressing the number is just a way of saying the number is numberless. There's legion upon legion of angels who believe just what you believe, who confess just what you confess about God. Universally despised? Not hardly. And dear Babe Lehman, she joined a crowd of saints on Christmas Day out of every tongue, tribe, and nation. And I dare say, if such a thing is possible in the presence of God, she was probably left in awe at the sheer number of saints with whom she now fellowships this morning. All gathered there before the throne of the Lord. What you believe, despised by the world? Beloved, no. It's despised in the world. But it's not universally despised. There are thousands upon thousands upon thousands before the throne of God right now, giving thanks and rejoicing for all the things that you believe and that you hope in and that are part of your confidence and trust in God. And we're not done yet. So you've got the testimony of the angels who agree with you. You have the testimony of the saints who have gone before, who are all gathered there together before the throne of God, and they adopt and hold to the confession of faith that you make. But beloved, it goes beyond that. How does Psalm 19 begin? You know it, don't you? What do the heavens declare? The glory of God. The whole creation out there is a testimony and witness to the things that you believe regarding God and who he is. They bear witness to the truth of it. The firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. There's no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their word is to the end of the world. And in them he has set a tabernacle for the sun. When you come to God in Christ, what does the word say happens? You go out with joy and you're led with peace and the mountains and the hills break forth into singing before you and all the trees of the field do what? Clap their hands. There's a saint. There's a believer. There's one who has the trust in the living God who made all things. Praise God. There's another one who has come into the train and witness of this. Beloved, we're not in the minority. We're in the majority. And we can't let the world impose upon us that fear. We are to hallow the Lord of hosts because he has the witness of the whole creation of every redeemed believer and the unseen creation behind him, bearing witness to the fact that he is God indeed, that he is the creator, that he is the provider, and that he is the only savior of men. Secondly, you have to let him be your fear. You have to hallow him. You have to let him be your fear. And the sort of fear referred to here is very interesting because it's the sort of fear which dictates behavior. 
is used to describe in Genesis the domestication of animals. When the Lord says, I will put the fear of you in the animals so that you can domesticate them, they'll do what you tell them to do. Last night we were watching a show that had animals in it, and uh, there was a serval cat, and you could see that cat. I mean, that cat could spring on you in a second. Had they give it a little piece of meat, and it would snatch out at it with its mouth so fast that there's no way you could, you could go away from it. And the woman who was training that cat told it to sit up, and that cat got up on its haunches and sat right up. This wild animal, because the fear was in there. That, that fear brought about obedience. And that's the description used here. In Deuteronomy 26, verse 8, where we read, So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm, with great terror or fear-inspiring deeds and with signs and wonders. In the context when Moses is saying that, he's saying, Did you see what God did in Egypt? Did you see that? So what do you think you ought to do? Why do you do that to the Egyptians? He did it to them because they wouldn't obey him. And you see what he did? He got them to obey, didn't he? So, so what do you think you Israelites ought to do? See, fear, this is fear that inspires obedience. It could be said that under grace we no longer act out of fear, but out of love. And, and that's scripturally accurate. It's true. But I maintain that any love that doesn't carry a sense of reverent awe for the depth and the width and the nature of that love, let alone the power and the grace that brought it to you, is a lame love that misses the most important element. Yes, we obey out of love, but there's an element of reverence in that love. Who are you to be the recipients of such love? Such earnest love as the love of God towards you. And as you think about it in that context, it it, it brings reverence out of us, a certain fear. You can't sing, what wondrous love is this, oh my soul, oh my soul. What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul, for my soul, to bear the dreadful curse for my soul without a holy awe or reverence. It's what recognizes the very character of that love. You know what? It's the theme of those who sing the song of Moses and the Lamb. It's Revelation chapter 15. Verse 2, John says, And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. And those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of gold, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord? 
and glorify your name. For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you. For your judgments have been manifested. Your great works will create such a fear in the hearts and minds of men, even those who rebel against you, that they must come and worship before you. And this is a call in Isaiah for you and me to fear God in love, to make him our fear. That is the desire to obey him because we love him, because we fear him. As you enter 2021 this week, let him be your fear. The one whose holy existence dictates your behavior and your reactions. Be determined to live like men, women, and children of faith in the Lord of hosts. And thirdly, let him be your dread. And this uses the word dread a little differently than we did earlier in the message. This kind of dread, I think, can be easily summed up by the words of Jesus himself in Luke chapter 12 and verses 4 through 5. And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that, have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him after he, who, after he is killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Fear God. And you notice first how Jesus addresses you in this statement. My friends. And right there in those words is the ground for all our courage. Matthew Henry says that the formula to being able to fear men less is to fear God more. I'm sure you've noticed those words about Moses in Hebrews. It's Hebrews chapter 11, verse 27. That's a great passage about all the, the, the testimonies of faith throughout the champions of faith in the Old Testament. And at the end of the story of Moses, it says this in verse 27, By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Moses had aroused the anger of Pharaoh to the point where he had raised his entire army against Moses. That's what it had come down to. No godly man ever had, nor ever has, so humiliated an earthly king in the way that God used Moses, the humble Pharaoh. And the scripture tells us that Pharaoh was angry. He was livid. He was mad as he could possibly be, as a human being could be, against Moses. That was the state he was in. And yet Moses, we're told, went out without any fear of all of Pharaoh's seething wrath. He wasn't afraid of his wrath. He wasn't afraid of Pharaoh's strategic advantage. There's that great scene where they're at the Red Sea and Israel has mountains here, Pharaoh there, and the sea here. And the people look at the sea, they look at the mountains, and they look at Pharaoh, and they say, we're going to die. And Moses starts praying, and the Lord says, Moses, stop praying, and go. 
go across that sea. And of course, you know what happens. He does. But we're told that in that moment, Moses had no fear of Pharaoh. Why wasn't he afraid of him? Why wasn't he afraid of all that anger, all that wrath, all that hatred? Because he was trusting in the one who was invisible. He had hallowed God in his heart. He had his eye on the one he could not see and understood that there was more for Pharaoh to dread from Jehovah than for Moses to dread from Pharaoh. Do you believe that going into the new year? That the powers of darkness have more to dread from Jehovah than you do from them? By calling on you to dread Jehovah, this passage isn't invoking so much trembling fear that comes with impending doom, but rather a trembling awe of him who is utterly unchanged by the flip of a calendar, who is unchanged by the circumstances that are going on in the face of this world. It doesn't matter how angry they are. It doesn't matter what their strategic position may be. It doesn't matter what powers they have at their own hands. Your God, the God you love, the God you know, is above it all and over it all. And he has the power to neutralize it all or to employ it for his own purposes according to his perfect will. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever God had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, he is God. The Lord reigns. He's clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed. He's girded himself with strength. Surely the world is established that it cannot be moved, but his throne is established from of old. And he is from everlasting. He knows our frame. He remembers that we're dust. As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. For the wind passes over it and it's gone. And its place remembers it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to children's children. To such as keep his covenant and to those who remember his commandments to do them. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the Gentiles to give thanks to your holy name, to triumph in your praise. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say, Praise the Lord. Right, some of you were following along in the passage. Let's try it again. Let all the people say, If someone asks you, what you're afraid of in 2021. I hope and pray that you'll be able to answer the Lord of hosts. He's my fear and he's my dread. He's my praise and my God. He's my life and my strength, my lamp, my rock, my fortress, my hiding place, my king, my deliverer, my hope. He's all my help, all my portion, 
all my joy and all my salvation. What do I fear in 2021? Jehovah God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Of old he laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of his hands. They will perish, but he will endure. Yes, they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. He can change them and he will change them and they will be changed. But he is the same and his years have no end. The children of your servants will continue and their descendants will be established forever before you. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that as we move into this new year, we may be able to keep our eyes, minds, and hearts fixed upon you. That, Lord, we would even now take time to hallow you, the Lord of hosts, in our eyes and in our hearts. Remember, Lord, that we're not alone in this battle and in this time, but there is the witness of the angelic world. There is the witness of the saints who have gone before, and there is the witness of the whole creation that you are the living and true God, that our God is God, and that you are faithful in all your works and all your doings. Lord, we pray that having hallowed you, we will fear you and let our lives be directed by our fear of you, our love for you, our reverence for you. And Lord, we pray that in the end, we will not fear the world, but we will fear you in a good and loving way. And Lord, not look on the world and be made to tremble, but think, Lord, about the things that you have done and the way you've done done them and tremble at the awesomeness of our God. And may our faith sustain us, encourage us, embolden us, and carry us through all the waves of the coming year. For is anyone here, Lord, who is facing the new year, without hope in you, without knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that even this morning, they would listen carefully to the witness of the saints, of the angels, and of the very creation itself, and come and bow before you, and seek that salvation which is to be found through Christ alone, to whom be glory both now and forever. Amen.